You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Lord and our God, please guide our discussion together now as we think in the spirit this Lord's day. We thank you for the worship that many of us have just come from. And we ask now that this dialogue, this understanding of your word would carry on from the sanctuary into this room and into our families. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is our sixth and final session together. uh, And I've entitled this one, The Little Seminary. Uh, It has to do with parenting. And uh, faith-filled parenting and table grace are two kind of subheadings here. If I were to summarize what we've been doing for the last uh, five weeks, I've listed those kind of main themes, numbering them by uh, to seven in the introduction. And I thought just to briefly summarize where we've come from. Uh, this has been a very uh, scattered and sort of uh, uh, introductory kind of approach to the question of the self and wholeness and oneness in marriage and now taking that into uh, family life. The thesis has been that relationships are kind of the proving ground of the gospel. They are that which bears witness to the reality of the gospel in our lives, how we relate to one another. And the key text has been Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you discern what's best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi, a beautiful and a powerful prayer, that underscores this um, relational need for discernment. Let your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you discern what's best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Number two, self-worth is not a human achievement, but it's a gift. It's a divine endowment. Um, it's, life is The measure of the person is not in what we have achieved. The measure of the person is in what we've received. We've just come from... 30 minutes of exploring, well, an hour exploring the depths of grace. Um, That truly is defining for us. Um, It is the Lord and what the Lord has done for us, not what we've achieved, not our name. And those of us who've lived long enough, you know, begin to realize that in very practical terms that what we leave behind is is a witness, is a testimony of the grace of Christ and kind of nothing we've done, nothing we've painted, nothing we've written, nothing we've earned. Number three, God designed us in such a way that the measure of our communion with him is reflected in our relationships with others. So I think there is a, a kind of a very integrative, one-for-one kind of correspondence between Uh, our relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our relationship together. Community and communion uh, fall together. 
uh, Jesus' famous uh, passage in John 15, the upper room discourse, where he says to the disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because what I know you know, I've brought you into that community with, uh, and in that case, the triune God. Um, number four, these two loves, and here we're talking about um, marriage, these two loves, marital love and divine love, romantic love and redemptive love, are meant to support and illuminate one another. There's a synergy here. Now, keep in mind, I've made the case, and I hope, I, I feel like we depreciate singleness um, to an unbiblical degree in the life of the church. And I made a strong case for wholeness in singleness, um, that life really can be, often is, and should be fulfilling in one's relationship to God. And so you don't bring a partiality into the marriage relationship. Well, you do, but not out of a deficiency of what God ought to mean and be in your life. So these two loves, I should have probably put that as a particular point, number four, but I missed it. These two loves, marital love and divine love, romantic love and redemptive love, are meant to support and illuminate each other. The lesser love, the love between husband and wife, is meant to help us grasp more completely the personal and intimacy and earnestness of God's love for us. So these two loves aren't in competition. If you remember, I compared um, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's kind of pietistic understanding of love where he struggled so that it was kind of an idolatry to love Elizabeth. And I compared uh, their love and the struggle that they experienced with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his fiancée Maria and the way they embraced their love for one another is a reflection of God's love for them. as the, the, the gift that God gave them, even when life was falling apart at both ends for them, both Maria's life and her family and Dietrich's uh, imprisonment. Uh, his love letters to her are, are wonderful, very different from Jim Elliot's letters to Elizabeth. Different kind of worldviews within the understanding of the Christian faith. The greater love, God's sacrificial saving love, is meant to be the source, the strength, and standard for human love. The power and intensity of the oneness experienced between a man and a woman points to the greater mystery of our oneness with God in Christ. You see, we could spend six weeks on number four, uh, but number five, to insist on finding the ultimate soul-saving love in one's spouse is to drain the energy and joy right out of marriage. Don't you find that, I mean, in terms of the story of your life? Uh, I, I have come on several occasions poignantly to realize that my loved one needed a savior to, pa to, to, to pass over. Uh, I couldn't be the savior. Uh, I felt that poignantly with my mother as uh, she was dying in the last days of her life and, 
And we both, I mean, she heartily would have agreed that she had a Savior. She knew the Savior. Uh, We have a kind of human tendency to want to play Moses and bring the people into the promised land, and we just can't. We come to the end of our own ability. It can be a good son. Uh, it can be a good parent. But you sort of come to the end of yourself. And you're very thankful at that point for the grace of God and for his salvation. And that you don't have to be the savior. Number seven, mutual, and this is what we discussed last week. Mutual submission in Christ is key to the joy of marriage. It's out of reverence for Christ that all relationships are founded, especially marriage. Uh, And that's where Ephesians 5.21, often excluded from even in the paragraph divisions in our Bibles from Ephesians uh, 5.22 is so critical. If reverence for Christ is missing, then nothing Paul says about marriage is going to make sense. We have often failed to see how carefully balanced and nuanced Paul's description of marriage is. Submission coupled with sacrifice, the body joined with the head, and a wife's respect for her husband matched by a husband's love for his wife. So that's what we've talked about. Now today, we're uh, in the next few minutes, uh, we're going to talk about parenting. And... Uh, one of the things that, that strikes anyone who's sort of using the Bible to guide our understanding of parenting, uh, it certainly impresses me, is how little, how little specifically is spoken to parents. Now, I'd love a 20-minute kind of Q&A on that because I think it would draw it out. But I'm not going to give that to you. I'm going to just jump right in with my conclusion on that matter. It's, well, you know, be asking yourself right now in your head, why is that? Why is the Bible seemingly deficient in giving us resources for parenting? Uh, You know, any Sunday school class that devotes itself to parenting is always filled in every church anywhere. There is a strong felt need for guidance, for direction, for wisdom, for anything you can do to help me as a parent. Uh, so then why doesn't the Bible care? Is it just because it's, uh, you know, we're, we're back a, uh, 2,000 years with Abraham, 1,000 with David, and, uh, uh, well, not 2,000, 2,000 between Abraham and Christ. Uh, but because of those years, is there, they don't even care about parenting? Uh, and we do so much. If we were writing the Bible today, 90% of it would be on parenting. Um, I'm joking. Um, I think it's this, is that everything that the Bible says about who you ought to be in relationship to God, the person of God, the man or woman of God, Everything that God says on that score, your praying self, your saved self, uh, your faithful self, your obedient self, all of that is on parenting to the parent. It's you as a person 
And, you know, and what we're striving to be is really not a parent, to perform like a parent. What we're really striving to be is a person that's completely dependent upon God. And understanding God's gift and God's power and God's wisdom and God's love and God's mercy uh, through us in relationships with others. Number one, all that we have said about the soulful self and wholeness in Christ relates to parenting. Everything that's been said about the self and about wholeness and about oneness, all of that factors into parenting. I, I made the uh, distinction last time between therapy and theology and how essential therapy is in, uh, I mean, on a very practical level, the kind of counseling that we often do need to be more caring, to be more sharing, uh, to be more alert, to pay attention to the dynamics in relationships. All of that's really important. But I would suggest, not just because I'm in theology, but I would suggest that the theology needs to undergird the therapy, that the practical aspects of knowing how to relate well ought to be founded on one's relationship with God. And that becomes the base then in which therapy really, I think, can work quite well. Um, so everything that says about the person ties in with, I think, the reality of being a parent. Number two, a parent's main job is not to be a parent, but to be a person. As Jerry Sitzer who painfully came to this conclusion. Um, uh, his, his wonderful book, A Grace Disguised, uh, describes working through um, the great loss that he experienced in losing his wife and his uh, mother and his daughter in a drunk driving accident uh, where the family had gone to an Indian reservation to observe the reservation on the way home was... Uh, crashed into head-on. It's a wonderful book because it's not just about that. It's really about being a person of God in the midst of that. And his loss doesn't take away from our own experience of loss. So it's a great book, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. Number three, the early church referred to the home as a little monastery. The Puritans spoke of the family as a seminary. Uh, They believed that the Christian home was where life made up its mind, where the basic skills of worship, of prayer, of comfort, of caring were modeled and taught. It's an integrative. Uh, And I I believe that uh, my wife and I have really shared that our our greatest work, our greatest ministry, our greatest task has been what we've done in our little seminary. I've been dean. She's been president. Um, And we have functioned really well in that kind of uh, little seminary. And our kids uh, will refer to uh, that kind of seminary experience, especially my son, Jeremiah, uses that as part of uh, his vocabulary in talking about the family. Edith Schaefer's quote in the text box there um, is just really good. It's, it's an old book, um, but a good book. The family is the place where loyalty, 
dependability, trustworthiness, compassion, sensitivity to others, thoughtfulness, and unselfishness are supposed to have their roots. Someone has to take the initiative and use imagination to intentionally teach these things. In pastoral work, I've had the privilege of, uh, you know, meeting people who uh, have come to Christ out of terrible families where none of this took place. None of it. (laughs) None of it. And uh, just, um, you know, to encourage them that they're breaking new ground. They are starting something that they have not experienced and the um, and for them to sort of get a, a glimpse of the importance of that, um, to enter into that, to uh, and it's remarkable. I mean, you too have met people who, uh, by who you see them to be today, you would never dream of what they suffered through back then. And it's it's such a privilege to see how the power of grace at work in that way. So this quote can't be just sort of um, reacted to. I didn't have that. I wasn't taught that. I wasn't modeled that. That's not what I, in fact, I've spent a lot of my life resisting what I had been modeled and taught. Uh, But it gives us the opportunity now in, in breaking with that, as it were, not to be resentful and bitter and and reproducing uh, the negative side of what has been experienced, but of a transformation, a change. Should I be stopping and getting comments? You all look like you're listening, so that's a key. Um, so the questions aren't wouldn't be prompting uh, because I think you're going off to sleep. But uh, I see the minds are working. That's great. Uh, sometimes I'm in a class setting like this and my adrenaline now is pumping so that I need to talk. Um, of course, when I start talking, then it's hard for me to stop. But uh, Okay, I gave you that opportunity. You could have just interjected and we would have gone with it. Number three, the early church referred to the home as a little monastery. What does that look like? A little seminary. Because I don't mean something uh, overly religious by that at all. Uh, my father just, uh, he hated hypocrisy. Uh, he hated the notion that, um, that pastors and missionaries and teachers of the word of God were somehow on a higher level spiritually. Uh, he was a mathematician. He loved the Lord. Uh, he sang in worship. Uh, great tenor voice. Uh, I didn't get anything of those genes. Um, and yet, it was such a down-to-earth. Uh, in my chapter on this, on the little seminary, I, I really walk through the life of Abraham. And Abraham and my father, I felt like, had a lot in common sort of a down-to-earth, real spirituality. You know, flawed and difficult and all of that, but really a man of God. Um, 
I was just raised in, you know, and it's all by God's grace. I, I wrote, in fact, there's a letter in the book in which I write to my dad uh, celebrating his birthday. Uh, and neither of us knew at the time that that would be his last birthday on earth. And, uh, you know, it was kind of an excuse letter. Uh, I was away at school and no gift was uh I was giving no gift. Um, I was giving a letter. Um, and uh, I was just thanking him for being a real dad in Christ. And that my brother and I would really have a lot to have to do, as it were, because we'd been given so much. To him who's been given much is expected. And I felt both my brother and I were gifted in being raised in that kind of context. But I would say my dad was a person, not so much a parent. I don't think my father ever tried to be a good parent. I don't think he ever tried to be a good parent. He just was himself in relationship to God and loving his sons and loving his wife and loving his work and loving carpentry, which was his avocation. and. I don't think parenting is a technique, a style. I think this is really being a person in God. Number four, mentored or manufactured. You and I have a lot that we've had to work through and deal with when it comes to parenting, I think, in our culture. We all keep thinking it gets harder and harder, don't we? That the social forces, the pressures the intensities, that all of that seems to just be building always. Uh, Are we mentoring or are we manufacturing kids? Today's child is entertained, chauffeured, clothed, equipped with the best that parents can afford. Then in high school, pure identification and youth culture combined to conform teens to a market-driven generational image. Parents often feel disabled by social forces beyond their control. That's an interesting thought. Parents often feel disabled by social forces beyond their control. They become, you and I, and sometimes, at some point, we are just fighting for the identity of our child. And there's all sorts of large social forces at work here. And that's where the intensity of prayer, the intensity of life, that's why meals together are so important. That's why times that are not organized, as it were, but I'm together with you, um, is just so crucial, I think, for that parenting process. I remember uh, it was uh, mention of homosexuality was on the news. And I had no idea what that was. And I just blurted out, well, what's homosexuality? And my dad said uh, he ordered a pizza and then we went to pick up a pizza. And he and I drove to pick up the pizza and he explained to me what homosexuality was. And, you know, it was that type of, I'd say, that type of attentiveness of um, being concerned to inform and to educate and to help his son understand. Uh, 
Number five, we receive our sons and daughters as gifts from God. They are from God. They belong to God. God is quite capable of dramatically bringing this truth home to us at critical stages in our children's lives. I put in parentheses there Genesis 22 because we could talk at length about Abraham being asked to give up Isaac. And I think in some measure, that's a good paradigm for all of us to think through. The Abraham-Isaac paradigm is, uh, is a parent-child paradigm. Uh, and we need to realize that this is God's person well before there are sons and daughters. It's easy to think of children as a gift as a gift of God when they're cute, they're cuddly, cooing infants, but our perspective often changes as they get older. Um, Eugene Peterson has a really great uh, quote on that. Uh, and it's, I think I've explained this uh, before some, in these six weeks that uh, I think the baby is a reminder to us of our utter dependence upon God. So the parent is reminded again through the life of the, the young child uh, how much they don't know, how much they're dependent on God. Uh, they're kind of re, reoriented by having a child. But then when the child becomes a 15-year-old and has just slammed the door, and I, I remember, you know, I said, damn to my mother, and my father just exploded. He just exploded. I couldn't even, I mean, this had been a case. I couldn't even refer to my mother as she. That was a sign of disrespect. And I remember on the second time I said it, he took me in his room. And, uh, you know, I never, ever remember being spanked by him. Never remember. I'm sure I was, but I, I don't remember it at all. And uh, he took off his belt. And um, he said, you just can't ever refer to your mother that way. I never, ever want you to even, I don't even want you to think that way. Um, and he pr then he knelt down and prayed with me. I mean, the belt was never used. <laughs> I think that that was a bit of an act. Um, frankly. Uh, and I still remember kneeling with my dad. Um, and you see, there was, it's a little bit like, uh, well, there was no small signs of disrespect in my father's understanding. There was either respect or disrespect. There wasn't sort of small stuff. And um, you know, I think I've, I, again, in these six weeks, I've shared that my brother and I quickly got the notion um, that it wasn't a matter of hiding life from father because we really didn't want to displease him because we really knew he had our best intention in mind. Now, I focused on my dad. I could say everything that I've said with different stories about my mother. Both were on the same team. Um, and we were the beneficiaries of it. And it's even kind of ironic, isn't it, that a 66-year-old man is talking so much? You'd think I was in my 25 talking about this. Children are not problems to fix. You got that? 
pastors have to learn that people are not people that need fixing. Children are not problems to be fixed. They are persons to be loved. Keep that in mind. Not problems to be fixed, but persons to love. And the, the language of immortality symbol is something that uh, Ernest Becker introduced uh, in his denial of death and that David Getz in Death by Suburb picks up on. Children should not be our immortality symbols. They cannot bear that. And in our relationship with God, they should never be our immortality symbols. We do not live through our children. We live for Christ, and in the process, we disciple our children. Turn the page to Table Grace. If we're serious about relaying the truth from one generation to another, we should not begin with the pulpit, but with the kitchen table. Our table talk is the test of orthodoxy. Uh, there's so many, uh, and Mark, uh, you might uh, agree with this, that there's so many of our students who really have been raised in families that have not really talked about the Word of God. Uh, and then they've come to Christ, and they've, uh, they've been in Christian culture, but they're not used to their parents kind of understanding the Word, understanding the Sermon out, praying the Psalms, uh, wrestling with anything, having private devotions where they themselves read the Bible. Uh, that is just essential for us to do in relationship to our children. To open the Bible at the table, to read a psalm, to pray about the concerns of the day, about people whose lives are impacted by your family's life, to pray about the fires in California, to pray about the uh, devastation in Puerto Rico. Uh, children ought to learn how to pray those things at that table. Instead, I think there's kind of a vacuousness, an emptiness. I'm saying this dramatically to make a point that this is where we learn how to pray, at the kitchen table. We don't learn it at church. We learn it in the home. And our prayerlessness comes from home, not from church. Now I should breathe. I just think that's really important. Uh, and what I now teach, I didn't realize was unique. I grew up with it. I breathed it. It was part of life. I just thought everybody did it that went to church, that was a professing Christian. And now I'm realizing how strange it was, how unique it was. Um, one of the texts, one of the key texts that we do hold out for discipleship and for parenting is Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. I love the picture. When you lie down, when you get up.
tie them as uh, symbols on your hands uh, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and your gates. Uh, Micah switched from crib to bed the last two days, and uh, Virginia has been in uh, with Kennerly and Patrick and Micah in San Diego. And Micah's had a challenge switching from the crib to the bed and not just sort of getting up every few minutes to appreciate the fact that he's now in a man's bed. Um, it's really quite small. But uh, so last night, Virginia is massaging his back, um, which he really is liking, and singing, My Jesus, I Love You. And, you know, that's, that's beautiful. That's raising a child. Um, that's grandparenting. Um, but uh, talk about it when you sit at home, when you're massaging your child's back, the three-year-old, so he can go to sleep, and you're singing, My Jesus, I Love You. When you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your house and your gates. Not literalistically, metaphorically, humanly, character-shapingly way. Number two, children are impressionable. Parents are given the opportunity to impress them. A make-or-break starting point for effective Faithful parenting is a humble acceptance of the word of God. Not their humble acceptance, your humble acceptance, my humble acceptance. And then these phrases that uh, it just is helpful to think through. Uh, this is very brief, I realize. But if you take Deuteronomy 6, what does it mean to love God wholeheartedly? Well, it means we grasp the word of God by heart. So that means we've got to be in it. We've got to seek to understand it. It can't be sort of a foreign document to us. The whole self and all of life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. True learning takes place when the word is integrated into every dimension of living. I know that's really easy for me to say, and I struggle to work on it myself, but I know that that's what it means to love the Lord your God wholeheartedly. Uh, Secondly, loving God wholeheartedly means that we look at ourselves and our children in a new way. God has created us all, parents and children, heavenward in Christ Jesus. As time goes on, we sense the dawning of a new relationship with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, all my three are in their 30s, and, uh, and praise God, I talked to all three yesterday, which is really the, the measure of a really good day. And, uh, you know, they'll always be sons and daughter, but they're also brothers and sister in Christ. And uh, as I have ministered to them, they minister to me. As I seek to understand them, they now are seeking to understand me. And uh, it's very satisfying. And it's always been challenging. Uh, Loving God wholeheartedly means our identity is in Christ, which frees us to become better parents. Our identity is not wrapped up in our job or our performance, nor is our identity fulfilled through our children. Our children don't have to prove themselves. They don't have to make a name for themselves. They don't have to become something just to please their parents. Our children are not our immortality symbols. Loving God wholeheartedly means that we lay aside the image of Father knows best, 
or mother is always right. For we don't know all the answers. We are not the Lord. And it's been always good for me to tell my uh, children when I've been wrong or when my perspective has uh, been faulty or when I misjudge them. Um, and I, I think one should, as a parent who's humble before the Lord, should kind of find that easy to do, not so difficult. The last paragraph there, loving God wholeheartedly means that I will not let my children bully me or intimidate me. I'm not a perfect parent, but I'm their parent. And with this calling comes a responsibility and accountability before God. Conviction and compassion, law and gospel, they go together. I cannot lay aside my calling as their spiritual director and mentor. I don't want to impose on them choices that they don't want. Um, It's been really interesting, even from a practical standpoint, like on sports. We've kind of given free, we tried to give freedom to our kids with respect to, if they wanted to switch sports, fine. Uh, We haven't tried to teach them that they, you know, a kind of loyalty of, uh, we've given them a lot of freedom for making those changes. Uh, You and I will do it differently. And that's one thing that Eugene Peterson draws out in his little book, The Growing Up with a Teenager, you have all these different styles and techniques and personalities when it comes to parenting, and that's good. There is no one set. What's important is that you and I be a person of God. And then how that's going to get turned, how that's going to get reflected, and what rules we're going to put down, and what, where we're going to be free, I think, is, is going to change. Uh, so there you have it, faith-filled parenting. Table grace, ideas to think about when it comes to grandparenting, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to working with youth, uh, if you're single. Um, uh, What a great privilege to impact people's lives this way and to be impacted by their lives. Uh, I don't think it gets any more fulfilling, really, than that. I tell my students, it's much better for you to have the love of your family than the fame of strangers. The anonymous people crowd is not much to be geared up for, but to be loved by those who are with you, that's what's important. I'm going to pray, and if anybody wants to talk afterwards, please feel free. Lord God, thanks for this time together. And we do ask that you would show us how to really be the kind of person you want in community and help us to be in communion with you and drawing on the power of your Holy Spirit in our relationships with others. Forgive us in our failures. Help us with your strength. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.